scriptures here. We are in Exodus chapter 20. We are working our way through the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one in the little rack in front of you. It'll be on page 35. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. We want you to have a Bible. Um, And so that's our gift to you. We are working our way through the book of Exodus, and we've made it to the Ten Commandments, and we are slowing down and going through the Ten Commandments, looking at each one in turn, and trying to wrap our heads around as God has rescued this people out of Egypt. He's making them into his people, and he's saying, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. We're trying to understand what that is and what he commands them to do, and how that applies to us. So, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not in vain. That is the verse we're looking at today. That is the commandment we're looking at today. I'm going to read it one more time. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand what is being taught, to understand what you are calling us to and calling us away from. And then we ask, Lord, by the empowerment of your spirit for us to to walk in repentance and obedience to this command and to... um, enjoy, praise, and glorify Christ as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, as we started the Ten Commandments, one of the things we said was that it was, we thought it was helpful. I'd been reading some books on morality and how cultures think about morality, and we, had, we mentioned two books, The Righteous Mind and For Our Good Always, and we said that the psychologist, um, Jonathan Haidt, had come up with uh, some concepts as he studied morality in different cultures. He had come up with some concepts that we thought were helpful. He's not a Christian, and so he's not talking about God's version of morality, but he is looking at culture and talking about morality. And he gave us five categories that we mentioned a few weeks ago when we started. He called these moral foundations, authority, loyalty, sanctity, fairness, and care. That these are moral foundations for how people understand what is right and what is wrong, and that different cultures uh, value or appreciate different versions of these, different ones of these, with to a greater or lesser degree. And so the first two commandments deal primarily with authority and loyalty. That you shall have no other gods before me, and you will make no graven images. You'll have no carved idols with which to worship me or to worship other gods. That's mostly in the loyalty authority category of Jonathan Haidt's category. It's not a Bible category as far as like a moral foundation, but it's trying to help us understand how we approach this culturally. The one we're looking at today is sanctity. And so we showed this chart a couple of weeks ago, which is this is in general how Americans... Westerners decide whether or not something is right or wrong. And we're going to talk more about this at our um, upcoming training weekend. So if this is interesting to you, we're going to spend a little more time diving into that. But basically, care and harm is our highest one. Does it hurt somebody? Then we know it's wrong. If it doesn't hurt somebody, it's probably not wrong. But then we have fairness, some sort of, of liberty, justice for all, those kind of ideas we also care about. And so we ask questions about, is it fair? Is it just? And if it doesn't break one of those zones, if it's not sideways with one of those, then it's probably not bad. We don't really care. And you'll notice that sanctity is way down on the list. We aren't a people, culturally, that holds much as sacred and therefore not to be tread upon. 
as I was looking at this and thinking about this, I was reminded of there's a, a little science experiment you can do where you have three bowls of water. The bowl in the middle is just regular room temperature water. You put one bowl on one side that you put ice in. You put one bowl on the other side that you put hot water in. And you place your hands in the ice water and the hot water. And when you do this, this feels very hot. This feels very cold. And you just stand there. It's for like a minute. And what happens is this hand gets used to the heat. And this hand starts getting used to the cold water. And then, after a minute, two minutes, something like that, you take your hands out. You place both hands in the room temperature water. And then a very weird thing happens to you. One is, your brain knows this is room temperature water. But your right hand thinks it's cold. And your left hand thinks it's hot. And you can see both hands sitting next to each other in what you know to be room temperature water. It'll mess with your head. If you're bored this afternoon, go for it. (laughs) And what... What I want us to understand as we approach God's law is assume God's law is the room temperature. It's the right temperature. Let's just assume that that's the right temperature, that God says this is how the world ought to work. But our cultures are like the hot water or the cold water. That as Americans, we've been soaking in the icy cold water of secularism. And so as Christians, when we move our hand over here, when we show up on Sundays and we open our Bibles and we're going, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to follow this, and we read a command like this, that God cares about the use of his name, we can mentally say, that matters. That's important. But it's like telling this hand, you're in room temperature water. There's no way to change how it feels. Not easily, not quickly. We actually have to soak here for a while before it'll change on us. And so I want us to understand as we approach this that we are not culturally well set up to understand or appreciate sanctity because we don't hold much sacred. And we think if you do, you're wrong and you should just deal with it. As I was reading through Jonathan Haidt's book, he has this quote, and I want to read through the quotes and talk to you how I was processing it as I read because I think it's helpful. He says, when an artist submerges a crucifix in a jar of his own urine or smears elephant dung on an image of the Virgin Mary, do these works belong in art museums? Can the artist simply tell religious Christians, if you don't want to see it, don't go to the museum? Now, as I was reading this, um, I don't know if you picked up on this so far, but I'm not Catholic. And... So I'm not especially attached to crucifixes or the Virgin Mary, but not the same way that a Catholic would be. But still, this is a representation of Christ, a representation of Mary, and they're being dishonored. But as I'm reading this, I'm kind of used to it. I don't think my heart rate went up. And when it says, if you don't like it, don't show up, I feel like I've heard that a lot. That's a general... You you don't go to the museum. You don't have to like all art. And then he says this, Or does the mere existence of such works make the world dirtier, more profane, and more degraded? He's pressing on this idea of where is your line for what is sacred? Where's your sanctity line? That's what he's trying to do in the book. He's not a Christian. He's just trying to press on this. And so then he says this, It's the next paragraph. If you can't see anything wrong here, try reversing the politics. 
Imagine that a conservative artist had created these works using images of Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela instead of Jesus and Mary. Could such works be displayed in museums in New York and Paris without triggering angry demonstrations? And might some on the left feel that the museum itself had been polluted by racism even after the paintings were removed? I read that paragraph and I felt that. I thought, oh, don't, don't, don't do that. Now, I'm a Christian, and I'm supposed to respond that way specifically to the name of Christ, to the representation of Christ, to how he's treated. But I read this one, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, no, that would be a problem. And I was really stuck on the line where he says, might some feel that the museum itself had been polluted by racism even after the paintings were removed? And I thought, yeah. There would be a call for a cleansing a removal of certain people that worked there. There would be call for some sort of something, some sort of a sacrifice, some sort of a, 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 a ceremony where you redid and remade this a place where people could be. I could feel that. Now, maybe that's still for you politically, you're like, mm-hmm, which I think we should care that people are, are represented well and treated well. But maybe for you, it would be if... Uh, in London and Paris at their art museums, they submerged an American flag in urine and put dung on George Washington. Maybe that's the thing that would make you think this is unacceptable. But the reality is we do have some things that we hold sacred. We do have some lines of sanctity. We do have some understanding of pollution. And what God is saying is that his name, his glory matters. And the way we speak of him matters. And the way we think of him matters. And that we are not to sully or dishonor his name. So as we look at this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I think there's three things, three things Three words that we need to define, and we're going to spend our time doing that this morning. We're going to define name, vain, and take. And we're going to define name and vain quickly, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the word take. But in order to understand, make this coherent, we need to know what he means by name, we need to know what he means by vain, and we need to know what he means by take. And then we can apply this. Name. When he says name, what is he talking about? That you do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What is the name of the Lord God? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks, what is your name? And God said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that I am who I am and that I am is four letters in Hebrew, no vowels, Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H, depending on how you translate it into English. This is where we get the name Yahweh or Jehovah, because they go in later and add how you would pronounce it. But it means I am. I exist. I'm the ever-existing, all-sufficient one. That's what he's saying. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. That he is, he stands on his own, and he is the only being that stands on his own. That is not derived from something else. That is not in need of something else. Pre-existent, ever-existing, sufficient. That's what he's saying. But then, he says this, and we need to look at this real quick. It says, the Lord... 
So he says, go tell them, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God. See Lord there where it's all caps? That's the way that, that YHWH is going to be treated in most Bibles, English Bibles, from then on. So if you see all caps, L-O-R-D, it's the divine name of the Lord there. But it's keeping in a tradition where the Jewish people would not pronounce the divine name as they try to keep the third commandment. And so they actually at times wouldn't even write the divine name. They would write out some sort of shorthand version of it. And our English translations, instead of putting the divine name, put this. In keeping with the same idea of how do we keep the third commandment. But it's not just that divine name there that if as long as I don't say Jehovah or Yahweh, I'm okay, then I can say whatever I want. Because when he describes himself, he says things like, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. When he shows back up in Exodus 34, as he's uh, declaring his name, he does the same thing. He says, the Lord, the Lord, but then he gives descriptions of him. And so his name is whatever we invoke to bring him to mind, to call him to our mind or to the minds of others. So that you can't say, well, as long as I don't say this or do this about this one particular name, but I can refer to the God of Abraham however I want. That's not how it works. It's whatever would bring him to mind, whatever would invoke him, whatever would call him to our minds, to the minds of others. And so it's any version of speaking about him. If you called him Wonderful Counselor, if you called him Mighty God, if you called him Jesus, if you called him Christ, all of these would be under the umbrella of his name. So, that's defining name. It's anything you would use to bring God to mind, to invoke God as you prayed or as you spoke about him or that other people would understand what you're talking about. That's name. What does vain mean? Nothing. Nailed it. That's it. Vain means empty. It means nothing. It means wasted. He tried in vain to get a date and then hung out at the house by himself. Like that's, that's the idea. It means nothing. It means it was wasted. And so what he's saying is you won't do anything that takes my name and treats it like it's nothing. You won't take my name and treat it like it's nothing, like it's empty, like it's worthless, like it has no value, like it is not precious, like I am not precious and valuable and holy and worthy. You won't speak about me, treat me, take me. So this, that's what vain means. And it matters to him. Ezekiel 20, verse 9, and he says this repeatedly in Ezekiel. I just took one to try to help us see this. He says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So he's talking about this, the Exodus, where he brings his people out, and he says that he worked for the sake of his name, that God cares how his name is perceived, because it is through that that we perceive who he is. It's his name that calls him to mind, that invokes him. So is he powerful? Is he good? Is he just? Is he righteous? So he cares about his name. He cares about his glory. It matters because he matters. In humans, caring too much about your name can be petty or sinful. But God is worthy, is holy. 
And that to belittle his name is to not just get sideways with God, but it's to get sideways with reality. And it's ultimately very bad for us. And you need to hear that because the thing that we care most about as Americans is care and harm. And you need to know that it is harmful to disregard the name of God. Because it puts us sideways with reality and it puts us sideways with a glorious God who is very good, but that will not be mocked. So what does take mean? If he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, what does take mean? And I think, after studying and looking at this and looking how the scriptures treat it, take means two, there's two primary ways to take his name. One is to speak it. We can take his name in vain with words. We can also take his name in vain with actions. And again, if you'll think about invoke or this idea of bear or carry the name, we can do this with words or with actions. We're going to talk about words first. In general, this is how we often think about taking the Lord's name in vain. This is what Jesus says when he says, as he's teaching his disciples how to pray, to pray, hallowed be thy name, or may your name be honored as holy, that we would treat your name with honor and respect. So certainly it means we don't use God's name as a swear word. We ought not to say, oh my God. If you would pray, if you would come in here and sing, my God, my God, and you would mean my God, and you would be calling that God, and you would be talking to that God, you shouldn't say, oh my God, when you hear that Justin Bieber has released a new album. You shouldn't say, oh my God, when your favorite pizza place runs out of a topping or is closed on Mondays now because they can't get people to work. We shouldn't say Jesus in some sort of a way like it's an expletive, like we're calling him in because we stubbed our toe. We, we, we should certainly not do that. But it's, it's beyond just that. We should speak in a way that honors him, that glorifies him, that treats him with respect and dignity, as if he's precious to us, as if he's glorious because he is. This is what Psalm 139, verse 20, says, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. They, the enemies of God, speak about him as if he isn't holy, as if he isn't good, as if he isn't glorious. But the people of God shouldn't. They speak about him in a way that's flippant. So this means we should consider how we joke. I was talking to um, Jamie Kern, who's uh, currently, she's doing mission work in uh, Lebanon, and she's learning Arabic. She said one of the first things she did in Arabic, she was hanging out with the people in the Kurdish church, and they were talking, and they talked about Pastor Ben, which is Ben Johnson, who she works for, and they were talking about Pastor Ben, Pastor Ben, and she said in Arabic, one of her first phrases she'd learned, she said, oh, Ben, Ben's crazy, (laughs) which if you know Ben, But that's a normal thing we'd say. He's crazy. She said the whole room, it was like someone just sucked the air out of the room. Everybody went. And then a lady went, we don't say that about pastors. And she told me, I was talking on the phone, she said, they've drawn a line. And anything that has to do with the Lord, anything that has to do with Scripture, anything that has to do with the church, anything that has to do with anything in that zone, they treat with a lot of reverence. 
to try to honor the Lord and not dishonor the things that matter to him. Now, if you hang out with us long enough, you will know that we don't take our pastors too seriously. (laughs) And we have said before that we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. We want to take the Lord seriously. But one of the things that is a danger for us, most of us are not in danger of, of honoring our pastors too much or taking this all too seriously, but we can be in danger of dishonoring the Lord with the way that we speak. And I'm not talking about how you talk about me or Spencer, especially Spencer. (laughs) We will joke about things that, that aren't funny, that aren't light, that aren't jokes. We will read cartoons about people meeting at the pearly gates and Peter's talking to them. We'll, we'll have little cartoons or little jokes about how God created the world. We'll tell jokes about Jesus playing golf. We'll, we'll joke about things that are precious and worthy and dear. And we'll hold them like they're a joke. We ought not to joke about the Spirit. We ought not let familiarity with something wonderful and holy make it less valuable to us. And we ought to be very mindful. And this isn't just how we joke, but it it seeps into how we think. Y'all, we just gathered in here as the people of God, those redeemed by Christ. And we sang about Jesus and about how beautiful his name is. But were we paying attention? Were we really worshiping? Y'all, I'm back there. I know I'm going to say this. My phone buzzed in my pocket and I had it in my hand before I have his reflex. And I'm still singing the words. But I'm not worshiping. We come in here and we sing. There are times where you're singing to the Lord about how glorious his name is and you're thinking, I wish the bass guitar was louder. You're singing to the Lord and you're thinking, I don't really like this song. You're singing to the Lord and then you stop and just whisper to someone about what you want to eat for lunch and then you go right back into it and you don't even notice that we so devalue his name and his glory when we treat him with no respect. So it matters. It matters how we think about the Lord and how we approach the Lord. One of, I was trying to think about how to help us wrap our mind around this because we, we just don't have this things are sacred, things are holy. So let's talk about babies for a second. We all agree babies are precious. And it's a nice thing to say if you see an ugly baby, say, what a precious baby. Because <laughs> not all babies are cute, but they are all precious. They are all valuable. They are all love. They are all dear. And one of the reasons they're precious is that they're delicate God is not delicate, but he is holy. So don't put delicate in there, but but keep the word precious, valuable, dear. If someone says, you want to hold my baby and you're doing something, you don't keep doing something with one hand and go, yeah, toss it here. You prepare yourself to hold a baby. Clean your hands. You get ready. I, because of the preciousness of babies, have both rejected holding a baby or letting someone else hold my baby. 
I've had people be like, you want to hold my baby? And I've said, no. No, I do not. And it's not because I don't like your baby. I'm sure he's fine. It's that he's precious. And I don't know you that well. I don't need to hold you. Like just, and I've also had people go, can I hold him? And I've gone, no. <laughs> but you can look at him back up a few feet. Because he's precious. We prepare our minds for it. We think about it. We, we hold in a specific way. You've never been like, oh, can I hold your baby? And grabbed its foot and just picked it up. Like it was a catfish. Good one. <laughs> We're mindful. And y'all, our culture doesn't care about Jesus. But we ought to. We ought to be mindful of how he's spoken about and how he's treated and how, he's, how we speak and treat. We ought to be mindful of that. I was at my grandmother's house and she had a, a doormat. And I was talking to her. I liked the design on it. And she said, well, you can have it. It was just sitting in her garage. This was when I was in high school. I took it home, stuck it in my room. I had it, I think, at the, the door to my room. My dad came. He opened the door, and he just stopped. He looked at the doormat, and he said, that belonged to my sister Cindy, and she had passed away when he was 18 in a car accident. And he said, I want that, because I don't, I don't want anything to happen to it. And he took it. Now, last time I was at his house, I was in one of his, his like, work rooms, and he had a doormat high up on the wall, well cared for. He was afraid I was going to treat it like a doormat. It's not a doormat to him. It was precious. And, and how, how dare we not care about the preciousness of Christ and the glory of our God, who not only is he really worthy, but he is personally good to us that he would rescue and redeem us and make us his. We ought to watch how we speak. We ought to care about how other people treat the name of our Lord. And we can do that in a gracious way. We can do that in a way that exempts us from certain movies and shows and, and interactions with people. But we ought to care. But the second way that we can do this, that we can take his name, is through actions. That we carry his name. We read this a second ago. It's Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9. But I want you to see something. There's something assumed here that we need to wrap our head around. God says, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, they being the people of Israel, in whose sight I made myself known to them, that's being the nations, and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. What he's saying is, I put my name on the people of Israel when I rescued them out of Egypt. They carry my name. They bear my name. That's what we read in chapter 19 where he says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. That you're going to carry my name. That in some ways it's like they have a banner that has the Lord on it. And they march under his banner. So that there is a way to carry the name, to take the name of the Lord that has nothing to do with how we speak, but has everything to do with how we behave. And... Daniel, we're going to read through a handful of passages because they understood this. Daniel says, in, in Daniel chapter 9, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So he says, work on our behalf for your own sake because we're marked by your name. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. 
It says, I will say to the north, this is God speaking, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That God marks people with his name and they represent his name and they're called by his name and somehow his name is attached to them. This is what the writer in Proverbs 30 understands. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. The name of my God, sorry. Now, is he speaking when he profanes the name of the Lord? No, he's stealing when he profanes the name. Because he's marked by the name. He's waving that flag, but then acting. That's what Jeremiah 34, God's speaking to the people of Israel. He says, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So you told them to set them free, they'd set them free, and then they changed their mind and took them back, and he says, you've dishonored my name. Y'all carry my name, but you don't care. Leviticus 22 So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So he says, you'll obey me. And then he says, you won't profane my name. And certainly that has to do with how they speak and how they worship. But it also has to do with how they obey. That they won't dishonor his name by being his people. And running after sin. And acting in ways that dishonor him. The same way that you might have had a parent look at you. And use your last name to remind you how to act. You might have had a friend over. And you said, well, my friend does that. And your parent looked at you and said, yeah, there are Williams. Phillipses don't act like that. You belong to a different name. You belong to a different people. And that's what he's saying. And this applies to the church. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling means making things good again, bringing us back into relationship, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled for God. So Paul's writing and says we're ambassadors for Christ. And as Christians, I think that it generally applies to us as well. We've been given the name of Christ. We are ambassadors, meaning we represent Christ to the world. And so it matters that we don't carry his name in vain. We don't take his name in vain. So, this is you getting a job and saying, hey, I I can't work on Sundays, and I can't work on Tuesday nights because that's when my community group meets. I can't work on Sundays because I'm in host team or I serve in Kid City. Um, And then, being the laziest person at the job. Having other people clock you in or out. Lying to get sales. 
you're bearing the name in vain. It's showing up to work and looking like all your other coworkers and caring nothing about whether or not they know Christ. It's carrying the name in vain. It's being a boss and making a big deal about how you're a Christian and being unfair, unkind, unhelpful. It's dating somebody and it's not going well. So you sit them down and you say, I think the Lord's leading me into a season of singleness. You make God co-sign the fact that you don't want to deal with the uncomfortableness of breaking up with somebody. And you've prayed how much about this? It's, it's not the Lord. It's just easier to have them be mad at the Lord or for you to sound holy as you walk through this process. It's getting into a relationship. Said, I'm so thankful for God. He's finally answered all my prayers. As you and your new boyfriend or your new girlfriend are actively involved in sexual sin, when the people in your community group point that out, say, I don't think this is a good relationship for you, you say things like, well, I prayed about it and I don't feel bad and God wants me to be happy. And you make God co-sign things that he doesn't co-sign and you carry his name in vain. This is Instagram posts of being blessed and highly favored, but really you just want to brag about your shoes or your job or your car. And you don't want to say, look at my great shoes, job, and car without you say, you make it look like you're praising the Lord, but you actually aren't really all that thankful and you've never actually submitted your finances to him. So you're just carrying your name in vain, his name in vain. We can do this all the time in so many ways. This is actually the other half of the church discipline process. Church discipline, when we think about it, so often we think of it as just the last step in the process, which is the, the one that I think maybe most sticks out in our mind. But when we talk about church discipline, it's actually just the church caring about the church. And so it happens all the time. If you've ever had someone in your group say, you probably shouldn't talk to your wife like that. Hey, you need to repent here. Hey, I'm going to hold you accountable here. Hey, that's church discipline. And it's good. And we so often... Because culturally, how we think about things, we so often think about it in relation to it's good for you to have people care about you because sin is harmful. But also, we care about church discipline because we don't want to sully the name of Christ by co-signing unrepentant sin. We care about the name of Christ. We care about our witness as Christians who say we belong to Jesus. And if someone's in unrepentant sin, it matters. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.11. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of, guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. That someone who would carry the name but walk in sin and not care, unrepentant. Paul says that's a problem because carrying the name matters. Um, I like documentaries. And I especially like Ken Burns documentaries because they are better than all other documentaries. And I don't want, I'm not trying to make you think that my wife and I are cool, but we did specifically pay for a PBS subscription just so we could watch Ken Burns documentaries. <laughs> but in Ken Burns' The War, there's this, this quote, this, this interview that really stood out to me. There's a, um, a Japanese-American, his name was Daniel Inoue, 
He ended up becoming a, he ended up getting a Medal of Honor and becoming a um, congressman. This is World War II. And at the beginning of World War II, when Pearl Harbor happens, they, they rounded up the Japanese Americans and they put them in basically concentration camps and would not let them join the military, would not let them, like, they took away their freedoms because they were just like, on the east, on the west coast, it was like, we don't know how this is about to play out, and Japanese have attacked us. And they reversed course on this. And so this is a Japanese-American whose dad worked now for the government and who was signing up to go be in the military. And he says that his dad took leave from work, had to get permission from the government to take three hours off to, to take his son so that he could enlist, so that he could leave. He was, he was leaving. And he said his dad, they get on the streetcar, and they're going. He said his dad's quiet. He's not, not a man who talks much. He's just riding with him until they get close to where he's going to be dropping him off. He said, my dad cleared his throat, and I knew something was coming. And he said, and I know he, he's not a man of words, so this was hard for him. But he said his dad looked at him as he was taking him to drop him off for him to go be in the military in World War II. He said, my dad looked at me and said, this country has been good to us. And it's given me two jobs. It has given you and your brothers and your sister education. We owe a lot to this country. Do not dishonor this country. He looked at his son and said, you're about to put on a uniform that carries the name. Don't dishonor it. And how much more should we care if we've been purchased by the blood of Christ that we carry his name in a way that honors him? How much more should we care in how we sing and how we speak and what we watch and how we treat him and how we teach others to treat him? How much more precious and valuable and good is he? That if we would look at someone and say, you've dishonored the badge, you've dishonored the uniform, and think that means something, which it does, how much more should we carry, care about dishonoring the name of Christ? The band's going to come back up. In a moment, we're going to sing. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And I want us to reckon with something for a second. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We're guilty. We're guilty of disregarding the glory and worth and preciousness of God. So what do we do? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, we got right to it and we stopped. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, here's the message. For our sake, he made him, that's God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus saves us up from our sin, and he saves us from the law, which holds us accountable for our sin. So he says, it was for our sake that Jesus did this. The message that we proclaim is not, I'm really good because I'm a Christian. Yes, we care about honoring the name of the Lord. But the message we proclaim is that he's really good.
that he who knew no sin became sin so that I might be made righteous, that my hope is in him. So in the midst of us, realizing that we ought to love and care about the glory of God way beyond the bounds of where we are right now. Yes, we repent and we praise God that he became sin so that we could be made righteous because our hope is not in our good actions but in his, his work on our behalf in the cross. And that's what we celebrate at communion. So if you are a Christian in the room, we would invite you to repent to spend some time with the Lord and then take communion, which is where we celebrate that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and that there's a new covenant for us, a covenant of forgiveness of sins. If you are not a Christian, communion is not for you. So we ask for you to not partake, but we would invite you to trust in Jesus he became sin so that we could be made righteous. The message of the gospel is not come be good. The message of the gospel is that you are in sin and you need forgiveness and there is hope in Christ. And that's offered to you today by faith that you would trust Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for valuing you so little. Forgive us for being the people who should worship and glorify with focus and energy in our hearts, who should care about how we treat your name and carry your name, who should represent you well in the world. And we fail. And so, Lord, we ask you to save us for the sake of your name the sake of the name of Jesus who will not fail to rescue any who trust in you. We ask you to forgive us for the sake of the glory of Christ who has come to redeem sinners and will not fail. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All around the room right now, take a moment to sit with the Lord. Ask him to help you see your own heart here, to repent and to confess and then to celebrate by taking communion.